This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. So let me tell you a bit about uh, Rajmohan, because uh, he's a prolific writer. This is not his first book. He's written several. I count at least five. Is that correct, Dr. Gandhi? Okay, two, three more than that. All right. Um, so, but apart from that, uh, Rajmohan is, uh, apart from um, this book that he's currently come out with, is a visiting professor at the University of Illinois at Champaign in the Program of South Asian and Middle Eastern uh, Studies. And he's a faculty director of Global Crossroads, a learning and living community at the University of Illinois. Uh, he's a jury member for the Nuremberg International Human Rights Award. Uh, co-chair of the Center for Dialogue and Reconciliation in Gurgaon. He's been a former a member of the upper house of the Indian Parliament, the Rajya Sabha. Uh, he led the Indian delegation to the UN, UN Human Rights Commission in 1990. And in 2004, he received the International Humanitarian Award for Human Rights from the city of Champaign. So it's a real honor to have Dr. Gandhi. He'll uh, speak with us, to us, for about somewhere around half an hour, 45 minutes, and then take uh, questions. So with that, may I invite uh, Dr. Gandhi to come up. Uh, thank you, Professor Dosani, for those kind words. And thank you, uh, everyone, for coming and on this rainy day. You are making me, who's come from Illinois, feel at home today. I'm particularly honored and uh, thrilled that Mr. Shorenstein himself is present today. I'm really touched by his gesture, but I do appreciate uh, the presence of, of everyone here. Um, so I hope that as a result of my talk, which will include uh, readings here and there from the book, uh, that you will have an idea of the man, Gandhi, uh, the politician, uh, the maker of history. I'll start uh, with a um, very quick uh, division of his life into phases uh, so that we know who we are talking of. Uh, born in 1869 in Western India, uh, Gandhi spent 18 and a half years uh, in two towns uh, on the west, western coast of India. Uh, and then he had three years of legal training in London Then he had 21 years in South Africa, where he practiced law and also fought for the rights of the Indians in South Africa, who were being uh, discriminated against and indeed persecuted. And then he had 33 years in India. He was assassinated in January of 48. Um, I will speak first about uh, the nonviolence that he is associated with and try to begin with to answer the question of how and why he embraced nonviolence and shared it as one of his central values uh, to the world. Now, it is true that um, uh, the different religions associated with India, Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, all emphasize nonviolence, or to use the Indian word, ahimsa. Uh, many in the Western world associate Buddhism and Jainism with nonviolence, quite correctly, uh, but not many are aware that Hinduism also uh, accords a very high value uh, to nonviolence. Uh, and one of the most ancient Hindu thoughts or phrases is ahimsa paramo dharma, which means ahimsa is the greatest value. So Gandhi was certainly, as a boy, uh, familiar with the notion of nonviolence. Um, but it's fair to say that the nonviolence that he then gave to the world was a product not just of Indian religions or the Indian background that he was exposed to, but also to, uh, to many influences in the rest of the world. Uh, he says that when he was a student in London, uh, he is now what, between 18 and a half and 21 and a half as a student in London, uh, he was given the Bible, and the Sermon on the Mount made a tremendous impression on him. And we, of course, know that the Sermon on the Mount makes a very powerful plea 
uh, for nonviolence. Um, and then there was the 1857 rebellion in India that he studied when he was in his first months in South Africa. This is a 23-year-old Gandhi who has arrived in South Africa and he makes a study of a six-volume history of the 1857 rebellion in India, which was a very notable event. It almost ended British rule in India, but then it did not. And what happened, uh, that what happened in 1857 and made a tremendous impression on young Gandhi as he was studying the history was that the reprisals were 100 to 1 and so extreme that the people of India suffered a very great deal as a result. So this was a tremendous factor in Gandhi's thinking, uh, the impact of the failed rebellion of 1857 and how the British, who were able to use violence much more effectively than the Indians, uh, were able to crush it with their uh, 100 to 1 kind of reprisal. And then there was uh, a book by Tolstoy, Again, this is Gandhi, who is 23, turning 24, and he reads uh, something by Tolstoy, and this is what I will uh, read to you as my first few lines from the book. The impact of Tolstoy's book on this 23-year-old uh, Gandhi. Uh, Tolstoy's book offers a Christ who is, was not the son of God among the world's, uh, atoning for the world's sins, but the powerful author of the Sermon on the Mount. The five commandments selected by Tolstoy from the sermon, do not hate, do not lust, do not hoard, do not kill, love your enemies, went directly to Gandhi's heart, answering important questions that occupied it. Tolstoy's book overwhelmed me, the autobiography says, referring also to the book's independent thinking, profound morality and truthfulness. Elsewhere, Gandhi would say that reading Tolstoy saved him from violence. When I went to England, I was a votary of violence. Despite all that he had read about Ahimsa or heard about Ahimsa, he was a votary of violence when he went to England as a student. I had faith in it and none in nonviolence. After returning from England to the experience uh, that he had with a British officer in India, and then later the ordeals in his journey from Durban to Pretoria engendered violent thoughts in Gandhi's mind, even though he was unwilling after arriving in South Africa to proceed against those assaulting him. There was a clash in his mind between violence and forgiveness, and Tolstoy resolved it against violence. So Tolstoy was a very major influence in Gandhi's nonviolence. And the other powerful influence uh, was received by him uh, in 1906, so Gandhi by now is 37, and I will read about these very interesting events. By this time, Gandhi has uh, moved to the Transvaal from Natal, where he earlier was in South Africa. A crisis occurred in Natal that broke up his Johannesburg establishment. After a Zulu chief rejected a new tax, a white man sent to collect the tax was assegaied. Another white man was also killed. In, in punishment, 12 Zulus were blown to death at the mouth of a cannon before an audience that included several African chiefs. Now, men being blown to the death at the mouth of a cannon was something the British had also practiced in 1857 in the, in the rebellion. In, in India. Uh, the Zulu revolt persisted and military action to crush it was announced. Gandhi was quick to evaluate the significance of what had happened. He wrote in Indian opinion, this was a journal he had started in South Africa, of, quote, important events, the effects of which will not be forgotten for many years, and of great changes likely to take place in South Africa. The Indians and other blacks, he calls the Indians also are the other blacks, in South Africa, he added, have much to ponder and act with circumspection. Though he doubted the revolt's wisdom, Gandhi's sympathy was with the Zulus who had harmed no Indian. But in South Africa, the Indians existed on British sufferance. And he, 
again concluded, as he had done over the Boer War a few years previously, that the Indians in South Africa had to support the authorities. In Indian opinion, he wrote, What is our duty in these calamitous times in the colony? It is not for us to say whether the revolt is justified or not. We are in Natal by virtue of the British power. Our very existence depends upon it. It is therefore our duty to render whatever help we can, in other words, to the authorities. So what does he do? By the way, John Duby, who was a Zulu leader who later uh, helped found the African National Congress, he also expressed the view, as Gandhi did, that while the Zulus had serious grievances, quote, at a time like this, we should all refrain from discussing them and assist the government to suppress the rebellion, unquote. So Gandhi offers to the government of Natal, with the approval of the Indian community in Natal, an Indian ambulance corps. So 12 South Indians, five Gujaratis, two from the Punjab, one from Calcutta, along with Gandhi, were part of this ambulance force. 14 of the 20 were Hindus and six were Muslims. And they were serving in an undulating terrain in the Zulu country in areas north of Phoenix and west of Stanga, including Mapumulo, Umwoti Valley, Imati Valley. Gandhi and his colleagues were on active service for four weeks in June, July 1906, carrying on stretches Zulu friendlies mistakenly shot by British soldiers and nursing these Zulu friendlies as well as Zulu suspects whose wounds received from British lashes had festered for days. Gandhi quickly saw that the military exercise supported by him was only a manhunt. Whatever his head may have advised, his heart was with the unfortunate Zulus, and every morning he was assailed by bitter qualms as he heard rifles exploding like crackers in innocent hamlets. His conscience was somewhat eased by the fact that he and his corps nursed innocent Zulus who would otherwise have been uncared for. Dr. Savage, the very humane doctor in charge of, of the ambulance, had told him that white nurses were not willing to attend to the wounds of the Zulus. In fact, white soldiers tried to dissuade the Indians from doing so. When the Indians did not heed them, the soldiers poured unspeakable abuse on the Zulus. Though the Indians could not understand what the Zulus said, they could make out from their gestures and the expressions of their eyes that they seemed to feel as if God had sent us to their succor. Uh, the Indians were serving in a sparsely populated, beautiful part of the country, few and far between in hills and dales were the scattered kraals of the simple and the so-called uncivilized Zulus. And with or without the wounded, Gandhi and his colleagues marched long distances at times 40 miles a day. Incidentally, Gandhi had learned uh, paramedical work, nursing work, some medical work also in South Africa. In his treks through these solemn sol solitudes, Gandhi often fell into deep thought. The horrors of war were brought home to him with vividness and Gandhi's conscience pricked him for being on the side of those who had practiced great brutality. He was reminded of India's 1857 rebellion, which too witnessed great brutality, including floggings and the blowing of, of men off a cannon mouth. That rising had only consolidated British power in India, even as the Zulu revolt seemed to be doing in South Africa. As the psychoanalyst Eric Erickson puts it, the exercises of cleansing the gunshot wounds and binding rents made by the lash, the experience of witnessing the outrages perpetrated on black bodies by white he-men, aroused in Gandhi both a deeper identification with the maltreated and a stronger aversion against all forms of male sadism. If in the Zululand solitudes, Gandhi reflected on the pangs of the weak and the cruelties of the armed, he also realized the folly of being excited into violence against the strong in arms. He also made some profound decisions about his life during this Zululand time. He decided that he would make celibacy a permanent rule in his life. He was already had four children. He was married when he was a 13-year-old boy. And he was moving towards this uh, decision, but in Zululand, 1906, final decision. Uh, the less he had, the more he would become. He had to be lean and clean, and his battles and weapons, too, had to be unsoiled. In the autobiography, he recalls his choice in a word, I could not live both after the flesh and the spirit. But this purely spiritual wording is misleading, for it leaves out the political, strategic, and pragmatic dimensions of Gandhi's Zululand decisions. 
Caritas had indeed triumphed over Eros, but a readiness to struggle had, al had also triumphed over the survival instinct and a strategy of wisdom over that dictated by anger. Now, within weeks of these decisions in Zululand, Gandhi and the Indians in the Transvaal launched their first nonviolent battle. Uh, his first Satyagraha, to use the Indian word that he gave to nonviolent battle, Satyagraha, Satya truth, Agraha firmness, firmness for the truth. And this meeting where the Transvaal Indians resolved to oppose uh, a new law that the Transvaal government was about to enact against the Indians, this meeting took place in 1906 on September 11. <coughs> a date in retrospect which is uh, quite significant. Now, a group of African-American leaders much later in the mid-30s meeting Gandhi in India said to Gandhi, uh, we admire you for your nonviolent struggles, but why do you use the phrase nonviolence, which is a negative phrase, nonviolence, why not love? And Gandhi's answer was interesting. He said, for one thing, love these days, he was speaking of 1936, love these days has many connotations. Of course, in 2007 too, love has several connotations. But Gandhi added that he wanted a, a phrase, a thought, that would convey both love and struggle. And in his thinking, nonviolence conveyed both love and struggle, and therefore he preferred the expression love. Of course, what he was asking the Indians to do vis-a-vis -vis the British was an almost impossible thing. Do not hate the enemy, but fight the enemy. Fight, but do not hate. Fight, but do not hate. Uh, it was difficult enough for Gandhi to apply this. It was very tough for millions and millions of Indians to apply this, but a great many of them did. Um, the last thing I want to say about his nonviolence is that it was not absolute. There were many instances in Gandhi's life when other values conflicted with the value of absolute nonviolence, and Gandhi did make compromises. To give you two instances, in the First World War, by this time Gandhi is back in India from South Africa, he says to his Indian political associates that we should help the British recruit soldiers for World War I. The British were finding difficult to, to uh, enlist people, and he said, this is an opportunity for India. If we help them to recruit soldiers, it will help political advance in India. Uh, Gandhi said, I will myself not fight. I will go, if need be, to, the, to Europe to fight, to, with a group. Others will fight. I will not carry a gun, but Indians should try and assist the British at this moment and then we will get political advance. He enlisted about 100 people, gave their names to the British authorities, with himself as the first name. But by the time uh, this had happened, uh, the war came to an end, and so these 100, or Gandhi himself, did not need to go to Europe. In the Second World War, the famous Quit India Resolution that Gandhi sponsored in the middle of World War II, uh, in the summer of 1942, the All India Congress Committee, Congress being the political vehicle that Gandhi was the unquestioned leader of, uh, had said that the British should quit India, even in the middle of the war. And Gandhi himself drafted the resolution which said that if the British agreed to hand over government to Indians, India would allow Britain and America to maintain forces in India to prosecute the war to a successful conclusion. So here is Gandhi in a resolution he himself drafts, agreeing that Allied troops could be stationed in India uh, if the British were indeed to hand over power to India and if India became independent. So his nonviolence, which was very passionately fought for, was, however, not an absolute value with him in every single case. Now some uh, points about imperialism and Gandhi. 
I think it's important to know to note that despite his non-violence, despite asking Indians and himself to love the British and also fight the British, he was an implacable foe of imperialism from 1920 onwards. Um, here is what Kipling wrote uh, just around the time that Gandhi was returning to India from South Africa. Kipling, the great poet of empire. He had published a history book aimed at British boys and girls interested in the story of Great Britain and her empire. In that book, Kipling underlined India's divisions. The extension of our rule over the whole Indian peninsula, this is Kipling writing, was made possible first by the exclusion of any other European power, and secondly by the fact that the weaker states and princes continually called in our help against the stronger. From our three starting points of Calcutta, Madras, and Bombay, we have gradually swallowed the whole country. He doesn't say that the Indians invited us to rule. He, we swallowed the whole country. Stating that the 1857 rebels were suppressed with the help of the gallant Sikhs and the Gurkhas, Kipling added that three factors blocked Indian nationalism in the post-1857 period. One, Muslim fear of Hindu rule. The Hindus were the majority, the Muslims were the minority, but the Muslims were the rulers of India before the British came, so many Muslims felt that power belonged to the Muslims. But if the British now were to leave and one man, one vote, one person, one vote was to be introduced, the Hindus would have the majority and the Muslims feared that they would receive uh, revenge from the Hindus. One, Muslim fear of Hindu rule. Two, opposition by the native princes. <coughs> the hundreds of Maharajas, Nawabs, Nizams, uh, who were ruling various portions of India, the native chiefs, uh, they were very pro-British. That was the second reason why the British rule, uh, why nationalism could not succeed. And thirdly, the complete indifference of the majority of the agricultural populations. The peasants were for British rule. Now, Gandhi um, decided when he returned to India that he would confront all these three, that he would make Muslims unafraid of Hindu rule. He would develop a Hindu-Muslim alliance. He would enlist the peasants. <coughs> he would neutralize the princes. And the fourth point, which Kipling did not mention, but which was a very important factor, uh, the untouchables of India, who are about 16% of the population, they were also opposed to independence because they felt that since the high caste Hindus were leading the movement for independence, independence would lead to high caste rule and the untouchables would suffer even more than they were suffering. So they said to the British many a time, don't go yet, don't go yet. So. Gandhi was also determined that he would bring the so-called untouchables also into the mainstream in the battle for independence. So these, these were his strategies, Hindu-Muslim unity, bringing the peasants, bringing the untouchables, and also neutralizing the princes. And he got his first magnificent opportunity uh, within five years of his return to India. Uh, but before I uh, go to that, I will just mention very briefly uh, that Gandhi faced this great challenge in doing this. Unlike other politicians, Gandhi had seen from the start of his South African days the interconnectedness of these three questions, British rule, Hindu-Muslim unity, the caste question. Hindus would not deserve freedom from alien rule if they continued to treat a portion among them as untouchables. And caste Hindus were unlikely to obtain independence if untouchables opposed it. And if they fought each other, Hindus and Muslims would neither merit nor attain independence. He understood the necessity of discovering the right pace on the three battlefronts. Patient work would be needed to attract Muslims and the untouchables onto the road to Swaraj independence. Yet he could not afford to be outflanked by Hindu militants tempting the Hindu high castes with an early independence won via the bomb. A Swaraj, moreover, that the high castes would dominate, or on the other, 
or on the other wing by Muslim extremists offering a revival of Muslim supremacy or by radical foes of caste presenting dreams of instant equality among Indians if necessary under British auspices. His thrusts should not be premature nor his caution excessive. Okay, this is the situation he faces but in 1920 he gets a, a great opportunity and I will now turn to that. In 1920, two things happen. Um, the previous year, the Jallianwala Bagh massacre had occurred in the holy city of the Sikhs, Amritsar, where Hindus, Muslim Sikhs, all had been gunned down in 10 minutes. It was the worst single incident in the history of British rule in India. And all of India was tremendously unhappy with British rule. Likewise, the Muslims of India in particular were extremely unhappy what it with what had happened in the Middle East. Uh, the French and the British had divided up uh, many of the territories that Turkey uh, vanquished in World War I, used to control under the Ottoman Empire. Um, and Mecca and Medina in Saudi Arabia, and Najaf and Karbala in Iraq, the holiest sites of Islam, formerly under the control of Turkey. Now, Turks were not Arabs, but Turks were Muslims. Now, under the control of the British and the French. And so the Muslims of India were extremely unhappy with this. Um, the simultaneous resentment of Hindu and Muslim India was a rare phenomenon. For over six decades, the Raj had worked painstakingly and successfully to prevent a Hindu-Muslim front. The last time something similar had happened was in 1857 when Hindus and Muslims of the Empire's Bengal army had mutinied. Involving only a slice of India, that rebellion was ruthlessly and effectively crushed. This time, however, Gandhi had non-violent weapons for baffling the British and he hoped to involve all of India. As he would say in Madras on 12 August and repeat the thought in Calicut on 18 August, India had been given an opportunity which is not going to recur for another 100 years. And so 1920 did see an amazing movement, a nationwide movement. Hindus and Muslims and Sikhs joined. And by this time, and I have not referred to this, but Gandhi had made a special bid to attract the peasants of India and had succeeded in doing so. Uh, the peasants of India too had come over to the <coughs> side of those wanting independence. Uh, and this movement created a tremendous stir, but ultimately it did not, did not succeed. Uh, and it failed for two reasons. One, um, some Indian uh, enthusiasts for independence turned violent. And in one particularly gory incident, 22 policemen of the Raj were brutally killed. <coughs> and to Gandhi, this was going too far. And it was, he took that as the moment to call off his, his movement. Uh, and at the same time, in Turkey, uh, Kamal Ataturk had taken over. He had uh, expelled the Sultan of Turkey, who was supposed to be the chief of the Sunni Muslims of the whole world. And so the great cause that the Muslims of India wanted to fight for the uh, rule of the Sultan over the Muslim holy places, that cause had vanished. And so the Muslims had lost interest in that battle also. Uh, and so uh, uh, the movement uh, petered out after three very dramatic years from 1919 to 1922. Um, but let me refer to something that Gandhi said uh, when the movement was at its peak in the summer of 1920. Um, his close friend Charlie Andrews, who was a British pastor in India, a very strong ally of Gandhi, but who also often disagreed with Gandhi. And he said to Gandhi, this business of supporting the, uh, the Arabs um, and supporting Turkey uh, was not, was not uh, satisfactory as far as Andrews was concerned. And Gandhi writes to Andrews, I've said always that absolute guarantees may be taken from the Turkish Sultan about non-interference with the internal administration of Armenia 
similarly for Arabs. The position created by the peace treaty is simply intolerable. The Arabians have lost what independence they had under the Sultan because they were more than a match for him. And now if the King of Hejaz and Amir Faisal can help it, Arabia and Mesopotamia will be drained dry for both these men will be puppets in the hands of British officers whose one aim would be to make as much money as possible for the European capitalists. I quote this uh, for us to understand uh, the strength of Gandhi's anti-imperialist feeling. This uh, passionate believer in nonviolence is also an implacable foe of imperialism. And writing a month later in Young India, his journal, Gandhi referred pointedly to, this is 30 June 1920, almost 100 years ago, referred pointedly to Britain's interest in, quote, the oil of Mosul, unquote. Okay. Um, In 1931, Gandhi goes to England for negotiations with the British. He goes by ship from India. And um, the Egyptians uh, are prevented from meeting him uh, on the ship or off the ship in uh, Port Said or Suez. They were not allowed to meet the empire's chief rebel. And an Egyptian poet, Ahmad Shauki, had exhorted Egyptians that as Gandhi passed by, they should, in his words, stop to welcome him from close quarters sitting in boats and also from a distance in whatever way possible. He is a guide and pathfinder like Confucius. He has inspired in Hindus and Muslims the spirit of mutual love and with his spiritual powers brought the two swords in one sheath. He is a great powerhouse which generates the power to tame predators. So this is the impact that Gandhi by now has in a country like, like Egypt. When he arrives in England to negotiate with the British, this is the sort of thing he says. Remember, this is 1931, and the British Empire is still very, very strong all over the world. This is what Gandhi says in England. The object of our nonviolent movement is complete independence for India, not in any mystic sense, but in the English sense of the term, without any mental reservation. I feel that every country is entitled to it without any question of its fitness or otherwise. As every country is fit to eat, to drink, and to breathe, even so is every nation fit to manage its own affairs, no matter how badly. The doctrine of fitness to govern is mere eyewash. Independence means nothing more or less than getting out of alien control. To a group at Oxford, Gandhi said, the long and short of it is that you will not trust us. Well, give us the liberty to make mistakes. I do not want you to determine the pace of Indian self-government. Consciously or unconsciously, you adopt the role of divinity. I ask you for a moment to come down from that pedestal. And then again. He speaks very strongly. His last uh, official meeting, I, I, I think I will save time and not read, but again, very blunt talks, uh, blunt words. Uh, and no wonder uh, Eric Erickson, in his uh, psychoanalytical struggle of uh, uh, study of Gandhi, uh, calls Gandhi's nonviolence militant nonviolence. Militant nonviolence. Now, briefly to the man Gandhi the human Gandhi, and the vulnerable, the weak, the flawed Gandhi. And here is a conversation Gandhi has with his wife, Kasturba. Remember, they're married when they're both 13. Uh, and this is in the year 1901. So they are, what, about 31 years old, each of them. And by this time, they have four children. And at this stage, Gandhi imagines, wrongly as it later turned out to be, that he could, his work in South Africa was over, he could now return to India and start his legal and political work in India. Uh, he has helped the community enormously, and uh, before he leaves, the community uh, gives him and his wife plenty of gifts. Um, 
and it allows him to go, but says that if we need you, we'll send for you and you'll have to return to South Africa. He, he agrees. He accepted the proviso. The thread of love that bound me to the community was too strong to break. This love was expressed in a series of farewell events and in costly presents. Gold necklace for Kastur, that's the wife. Other gold chains, gold watches, diamond rings. Most were from the community, some from clients. After an evening occasion when the bulk of the gifts were given, a deeply agitated Gandhi spent a sleepless night, walking up and down his room and debating the gifts. Should a public servant accept gifts? Since his clients were also helpers in public work, should he even take what they had given? The autobiography is frank. It was difficult for me to forego gifts worth hundreds of pounds. But he found it more difficult to keep the gifts. After all, he was trying to simplify his life by this stage. And he was telling his children and wife that service was its own reward. And he was in fact urging the community to conquer the infatuation for jewelry. That night he drafted a letter placing the presents in a trust for the community and naming trustees who would look after uh, the money or look after the, the, the uh, jewels. In the morning he held, quote unquote, a consultation with his wife Kastur, but only after securing, unfairly it must be said, the agreement of his boys. Apparently, Harilal, his eldest boy, and Gokul, his nephew, were 13, and Manilal, 9, not only said to their father that they did not need the presents, they also agreed to persuade their mother. This did not prove easy. Kastur fought with passion and logic both. I might add here that Kastur was illiterate. He had tried ever since he married her to teach her, educate her, but she had refused. But she fought with passion and logic both. The boys might dance to his tune, he, she told Gandhi, but what about my daughters-in-law? The future was unknown, and she would be the last person to part with gifts so lovingly given. She cried too. But the boys and the husband would not budge. Gandhi said that the boys would not marry young. When they did marry, their wives would be free from the lure of ornaments. If, however, ornaments were needed, Kastur could ask him. Ask you? I know you by this time. You deprived me of my ornaments. Fancy you offering to get ornaments for my daughters-in-law, you who are trying to make sadhus of my boys from today. Erickson's translation of this last remark is, you want them to be saints before they are men. Saying no, the ornaments will not be returned, Kastur asked a proper legal question, and pray what right have you to my necklace? In a pitiless legal reply, Gandhi asked if the necklace was given for his service, or hers. <laughs> I agree, Kastur said, but she added, service rendered by you is as good as rendered by me. I've toiled and moiled for you day and night. Is that no service? You, you force all and sundry on me, making me weep bitter tears, and I slaved for them. And then Gandhi writes, these were pointed thrusts, and some of them went home. Uh, of course, he wrote this much later. At the time, uh, and he writes, he, he admits that he somehow succeeded in extorting her consent. <coughs> the gifts received in 1896 and 1901 were all returned. Uh, but of course, in October 1901, uh, the consultation was not between equals. Uh, over the years, his attitude to his wife did change. Uh, and he writes... <coughs> Uh, to his son, Ramdas, his third son, uh, when the son gets married, this is what uh, Gandhi writes to, to him, that he does not want any of his sons to behave towards his wife as I did towards Ba, that's Kastur. She could not be angry with me, whereas I could with her. I did not give her the same freedom of action which I enjoyed. My behavior towards her has progress progressively changed and the result is that her old fear of me has disappeared mostly, if not completely. And much later, this is after Kasturba is dead, uh, this is what Gandhi says to one of his granddaughters. This is now in the last months of Gandhi's life. Kasturba is no longer living. Ba, that is, which means mother, which is how Gandhi was referring to Kasturba, Ba was in no way weaker than I. In fact, she was stronger. If I had not had her cooperation, I would have been sunk. It was that illiterate woman who helped me to observe all my vows with the utmost strictness 
and kept me ever vigilant. Similarly, in politics also, she displayed great courage and took part in all the campaigns. She was a living image of the virtues of a Vaishnava described by Narsi Mehta, this famous line which says, a good man is only, a good person is he who understands another's pain. A good person is, is he who understands another's pain. She was a living image of the virtues of a Vaishnava described by Narsi Mehta. It is because of her that I am today what I am. In the fast of 1943, this was a 21-day fast in detention when Gandhi nearly died. I was nearly at death's door, but she never cried or lost courage, but on the contrary, kept up other people's courage and prayed to God. I can see her face vividly even today. Um, now, on the great question of Muslims and non-Muslims, Hindus and Muslims, the Hindu-Muslim story of the subcontinent in the 30s, the 40s, is in some ways the story of the world today. Um, and I want to uh, read something uh, about the tribals of northwestern India, the people between Afghanistan and Pakistan, very much in the news these days. Um, Gandhi meets uh, this remarkable associate of his, Khan Abdul Ghaffar Khan, otherwise known as Badshah Khan, uh, who was a non-violent fighter for India's independence. He was a believer in Hindu-Muslim uh, partnership. Uh, he did not want India to be divided. Um, and he was very keen to work with the tribals of the Northwest in the tribal areas, which are very much in the news today, but he was prevented by the British from meeting any of the tribals. Uh, so Gandhi uh, and uh, Ghaffar Khan, meeting in 1929, discuss how the tribals can be enlisted. Um, and then when Gandhi himself visits the Northwest Frontier Province in the late 1930s, uh, and he meets uh, several Hindus and Sikhs who complain that the tribals come down from the tribal areas into our settled places and they attack us and they, we are afraid of them. Uh, Gandhi is in the Northwest Frontier Province in 1938. The province's Hindu and Sikh minorities, troubled by raids by tribes descending into the frontier settled areas, were told by him that self-defense was everybody's birthright. I do not want to see a single coward in India. This again is interesting. He is a passionate believer in nonviolence, but he says self-defense is everyone's birthright. He also asked the Hindus and Sikhs to realize that the tribesman was a human being just like you and me and capable of responding to the human touch. He had met several tribesmen, he said, following his arrival in the province. He did not find that their nature was essentially different from human nature elsewhere. Then he challenged the Hindus. You are a community of traders. Do not leave out of your traffic that noblest and precious merchandise, love. Give to the tribesmen all the love you are capable of, and you will have theirs in return. Now, this is not a perfect solution for today's situation in the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan, but it is worth recalling this even as we uh, study or read off, hear of plans to bomb vast areas uh, in order to catch some terrorists sheltered by the tribals. Um, I think everybody here knows that Gandhi was ultimately killed by extremist Hindus who thought he was friendlier than necessary to the Muslims. He was too friendly, they thought, to the Muslims. But it's important also to know, uh, to be aware of the challenge that Gandhi often put uh, to the Muslims. And this is, uh, again, in one of his fasts for Hindu-Muslim unity, this is the year 1924, He's staying in the home of uh, Maulana Muhammad Ali, who is at this time the president of the Congress Party. Later, he uh, drifted away from Gandhi, one of the most popular Muslim leaders of India at the time. And he had an older brother called Shaukat Ali. The Ali brothers were very famous personalities. And he says during the fast to Shaukat Ali, I would ask Muslims to befriend the Hindus if they think it is not contrary to their religion. Uh, he wants uh, the Muslims to uh, 
faced a great question. Has friendship and love to be extended only to Muslims or also to non-Muslims? If they feel it is contrary to their religion to befriend the Hindus, then I'm sure I should have no cause to live anymore. I should die. But he adds, I have not a shadow of doubt that Islam has sufficient in itself to become purged of illiberalism and intolerance. He wants Muslims to extend their friendship to non-Muslims. And he says, I have not a shadow of doubt that Islam has sufficient in itself to become purged of illiberalism and intolerance. And some other examples of, of how he wants the Muslims too uh, to face the realities. This is 7 June 1947. By this time, Gandhi has acquiesced very uh, disappointedly and reluctantly in partition. Um, he asks Jinnah, the founder of Pakistan, to build a Pakistan where the Gita could be recited side by side with the Quran. And the temple and the Gurdwara would be given the same respect as the mosque, so that those who had been opposing Pakistan till now would be sorry for their mistake and would only sing praises of Pakistan. Um, but of course, we know that, uh, or rather, many don't know, that one of Gandhi's most tangible and most remarkable achievements uh, before he died was to prevent the expulsion of all the Muslims from Delhi. There was a well-prepared plan to make Delhi a completely Hindu city. Uh, and Gandhi arrived in Delhi and he, he prevented that. And, uh, uh, he undertook a fast again, not long before he was killed, for Hindu-Muslim friendship. But one of the objectives of the fast was to make sure that Delhi would stay as a city for all. And I will read something about that. This is a uh, day after he starts the fast, 14 January 1948. Delhi is the capital of India. It is this city uh, which was Indraprastha, which was Hastinapur. It's the heart of India. All Hindus, Muslims, Sikhs, Parsis, Christians, and Jews who people this country, from Kanyakumari to Kashmir, from Karachi to Dibrugarh, have an equal right to it. Therefore, anybody who seeks to drive out the Muslims is Delhi's enemy number one, and therefore India's enemy number one. When I was young, I had never even read the newspapers. I could read English with difficulty and my Gujarati was not satisfactory. I've had the dream ever since then that if the Hindus, Sikhs, Parsis, Christians, Muslims could live in amity, not only in Rajkot, but in the whole of India, they would all have a very happy life. If that dream could be realized even now, when I'm an old man on the verge of death, my heart would dance, children would then frolic in joy. Um, One other line from him around this time. Uh, people are afraid. They're afraid to stand up to uh, angry people, to extremists on both sides. And he says, I have just a handful of bones in my body, but my heart belongs to me. So do your hearts belong to you. Um, and I will finally read before we have a discussion. Um, something that he said on January 21 of 1948. He was killed on January 30, 1948. On January 20, the same group of people who managed to kill him on January 30 had arrived to kill him uh, at his prayer meeting in Delhi. Uh, and the plan didn't succeed. And one of them who had exploded a device was arrested. The others slipped away to come several days later. Uh, but on the 21st of, of uh, January, Gandhi speaks uh, about the incident the previous day. Uh, okay. 
Now, this is 20th January. Later in the evening, Gandhi heard that a man had been arrested for the explosion. At the time of the explosion, he did not realize what had happened. The audience seemed to panic. This explosion occurred when Gandhi was addressing his prayer meeting audience. But Gandhi said in a firm voice recorded by All India Radio, listen, 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 nothing has happened. Order returned and Gandhi resumed speaking. Later that night and the following day, he received numerous messages praising him for his poise. He also heard that this man, Madan Lal Pawa, had been defiant in custody, the man who had been captured. In his post-prayer remarks of 21 January, Gandhi's outlook came across as also his battle for the Hindu mind, his certainty about his role, and his intuition that Madan Lal was not acting on his own. This is Gandhi speaking, 21 January. Let me first deal with the bomb incident of yesterday. People have been sending me wires, telegrams, congratulating me and praising me. In fact, I deserve no congratulations. I displayed no bravery. I thought it was part of army practice somewhere. I only came to know later that it was a bomb and that it might have killed me if God had not willed it that I should live. You should not have any kind of hate against the person who was responsible for this. He had taken it for granted that I am an enemy of Hinduism. Is it not said in chapter 4 of the Gita that whenever the wicked become too powerful and harm dharma, dharma is the Hindu concept of of order, of righteousness. If the wicked become too powerful and harm dharma, God sends someone to destroy them. The man who exploded the bomb obviously thinks that he has been sent by God to destroy me. I have not seen him, but I am told that this is what he said when questioned by the police. But if we do not like a man, does it mean that he is wicked? If someone kills me, taking me for a wicked man, will he not have to answer before God? When he says he was doing the bidding of God, he's only making God an accomplice in a wicked deed. Those who are behind him and whose tool he is should know that this sort of thing will not save Hinduism. Gandhi knows that this man is acting on behalf of several other people. If Hinduism has to be saved, it will be saved through such work as I am doing. I've been imbibing Hindu dharma right from my childhood. My nurse, who literally brought me up, taught me to invoke Rama, that is one of uh, the names of God that Hindus love, whenever I had any fears. Having passed all the tests, I am as staunch a Hindu today as intuitively I was at the age of five or six. Do you want to annihilate Hindu dharma by killing a devout Hindu like me? Some Sikhs came to me and asked me if I sus suspected that a Sikh was implicated in the deed. I know he was not a Sikh, but what even if he was? What does it matter if he was a Hindu or a Muslim? May God bless him with good sense. Yesterday, an illiterate woman displayed courage in having the culprit arrested. I admire her courage. So this was 21 January. I think I will stop at this point. There's much more I could give, but you have been very patient for long enough. Thank you very much. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.